and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, I'm really glad you have chosen to join us today. So recently on the show, we have been taking a look back at the year that was 2021 as we get toward the end of the year and the end of our live shows here on Detroit Today. So each show, we've been digging into the biggest and most important news stories and developments related to a specific issue or subject. Yesterday, we talked about the year in the law. Last week, we talked about the year in COVID. And today, we're going to spend the hour breaking down some of the biggest events in Michigan politics and policy. We have had a lot to talk about on those fronts throughout this year. Divided government continues to make it difficult to find consensus on big, bold policy changes at our state capitol. COVID may not have gone away, but state mandates certainly have, and that was a result of a power move by the state legislature against Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And we've even seen some historic firsts, including our first ever redistricting process controlled by an independent citizens redistricting commission. So as we talk about this this hour, we, of course, want to hear from you. Call and tell us what have been the most interesting and important state government stories in your mind. What do you think is going on in Lansing? Is it something that you want to see going on, or is it kind of lacking in its effectiveness in the areas of your life that are affected by state government? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to include you in the conversation that way. Joining us this hour to help talk about all of the things that have happened in Lansing over the last 12 months is somebody who pays an awful lot of attention to what happens in Lansing. Zach Gorchow is the publisher and executive editor of the Gongwer News Service, which covers state government in Lansing. Zach, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Great to be with you. So I want to start with this. We got some really big news yesterday out of Lansing, and it was about Michigan's redistricting commission. The Michigan Supreme Court ruled against the commission and in favor of several news organizations that sued the commission over its closed-door session in October and some secret memos that it created about the criteria it was using to draw our new maps. Uh, this was the first major lawsuit against the commission. And I think a lot of people were, I think I heard from a lot of people, I should say, who were worried that uh, that this would end up being a closed process the way that the commission wanted. The Supreme Court said no. Uh, what was your reaction to that ruling? Uh, you know, really fascinating ruling. In many ways, it was the balancing tests that I knew that I think we all knew they were facing, which was the constitutional amendment that voters passed in 2018 clearly prioritized uh, openness, uh, transparency, and this being a public process versus you know, a very basic foundational legal principle 
which is attorney-client privilege. And I think if you, you listen to the oral arguments before the court, you could see the justices were struggling with that. And uh, it ended up being a four to three decision. So very, very close with uh, the three uh, Republican nominated justices and one Democrat nominated justice, uh, Richard Bernstein, uh, deciding that the uh, transparency and openness prioritized in the amendment uh, trumped attorney-client privilege with the, the remaining three Democratic justices saying, no, attorney-client privilege is foundational. It, you know, the commission has to be able to do this. So um, I really didn't have a good feel for how this would come down mm -hmm. because there were such significant arguments in both directions. I certainly personally felt that the um, constitutional language uh, trumped the attorney-client privilege language in this particular case. Um, you know, I should mention Gongwer News Service did contribute to the Michigan Press Association's legal foundation uh, to help with arguing this case. Um, so, you know, we did, we did feel have a, a particular view on this, uh, but there were, there were very good arguments to be made both ways on this. And it really does now set a major precedent for how the commission must conduct business, which mm -hmm. I think basically means up and until it provides final approval of the maps, there's very, very, very little, uh, scenario where they can go into closed session. I, you know, once they have a done final approval and the inevitable litigation comes, um, I, I think the court in its the majority opinion yesterday was saying, yes, there would be situations where you, the commission could go into closed session uh, to discuss legal strategy on a specific lawsuit that's been filed, but not on a theoretical lawsuit that hasn't been filed yet. And so the context for this is one of the things that's really interesting to me. And, and you've touched on some of that there, but we've spent all year with this commission kind of trying to find its way to drawing these maps because, well, we've never done this before. Uh, you know, 10 years ago when the legislature was still in charge of, of drawing these maps, we didn't see anything at all no. until yeah. the maps came out and you never had a chance to even suggest that, hey, what if what if we did this differently, or I don't like this particular uh, approach to to the maps? We've had all of that. We've had all that opportunity this time, and that to me has been really the strength of the process so far is the fact that that citizens, ordinary citizens, are doing the work, but but other ordinary citizens get a chance to contribute and and say what they want and react to the to the to the ideas that come out of the commission i i really felt like that context was in some jeopardy because yeah. of what the the commission had decided to do with these memos uh, and this meeting and that all of that great kind of public exchange would have been for nothing almost if if the court had ruled in the commission's favor. I think a lot of people would have lost faith in in what we're doing. Well, the big risk, and you make a great point, Stephen, because it is night and day compared to how redistricting has been handled in the past. Uh, like you said, it was a completely closed process up until um, the plan was rubber stamped through the legislature as fast as they could possibly legally push it through, uh, which would usually be about one week. Uh, this is this is a completely uh, different process, far more open, um, and, and 
really in a way that has engaged uh, the public. Um, and, and I think you're right that it that this situation threatened to you know override um, what was what I would say has been one of the great successes of the commission process. What I think was particularly concerning, uh, if you looked at some of the arguments the commission's attorneys were making, is they they you know the Constitution says all business of the commission has to be done in public. So the, the court, I think the biggest thing it decided yesterday was not even so much the specifics of what has to be open, and, you know, what the commission did right or wrong. It was what all business means, mm-hmm. which um, the commission thought it should mean all decisional actions, which my goodness, if that had been taken, if that had been accepted as the definition, and the majority noted this in its opinion, just as Viviano did, who wrote the opinion, that it could have essentially allowed the commission to close off anything other than um, the actual vote uh, to advance a map uh, forward. Um, that, that could have been very damaging long term, even though that's not how this commission has conducted business. Mm-hmm. Who knows what would have happened uh, down the road? It was a very, very important decision. Yeah. I'm talking with Zach Gorchow. He is the publisher and executive editor of the Gongwer News Service in Lansing, which covers state government uh, maybe more closely than any other news organization in the state. We're talking about what happened this year in Lansing in 2021. Uh, all of the news that came out of our state government, the legislature, the governor, the courts. Uh, We want to include you in the conversation as well. Give us a call and tell us what are the state government or politics stories that made the biggest impression or impact on you this year. Uh, Tell us whether you think Governor Whitmer is doing a good job. In particular, what do you make of her current approach to COVID-19 restrictions, which has, of course, been cabined quite a bit uh, by the legislature? Uh, What about the Republican-controlled state legislature. What do you think of the work that they are doing right now with regard to COVID, with regard to all of the money that is kind of raining down on Michigan right now and other states uh, because of uh, uh, COVID relief and things like that? Uh, We are talking right now about the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission, which has been pretty hard at work all year trying to draw new maps, new districts for our state legislature and for Congress. Uh, And are you looking forward to 2022, which is going to be an election year here in Michigan? Uh, The state legislature and the governor will uh, stand for for election as well as lots of other state and local offices. As always, the phone number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Before we change subjects here, Zach, I want to talk just a little more about the redistricting commission. We are coming up on that commission's deadline to vote on final maps. Uh, there have been some stories already about what we might see or what people are maybe expecting us to see. Uh, What should we be looking for in the coming days? And when those maps are released, how, how frenetic is the process going to be by (laughs) which people (laughs) rush to court and, and try to challenge them? 
So the commission has advanced multiple versions of maps each for the U.S. House, or soon to be 13 U.S. House districts, the Michigan Senate, and the Michigan House. So the big question is going to be, can they get uh, the required constitutional majority behind one of these maps for each office? So that means not only do they need a majority of the 13 members, but under the Constitution, at least two members of the Republicans on the commission, Democrats on the commission, and the unaffiliated members on the commission uh, must support that map. So, for example, if you had a seven to six vote with uh, you know four Democrats and three of the unaffiliated people voting for it and all the Republicans and the other unaffiliated voting, you know, that would not constitute passage. Mm-hmm. There has to be some measure of support uh, from each entity. So can they achieve that? Um, There hasn't been a lot of partisan acrimony, I think, relative to the rest of the political world on this commission. There has been some. um, But can they can they rally behind one of these maps? I have no idea. We'll find out. And then if they can't, it goes to this uh, ranked choice system, um, which, you know, some might say is a, a good backup system. Others might say it is quite convoluted because, again, um, even though uh, commissioners will rank their choices, the one you know, and the one with the most points, meaning the one that gets you know the best results from the various members, doesn't necessarily win because again, I won't get into the really nitty gritty details of this. It, there has to be some measure of support mm-hmm. from all of the t- um, you know from the Republicans, Democrats, and unaffiliated members. So this is a big test because if for some reason, they can't get to the required support across all party groups. There's a, a sort of a fail-safe mechanism where a map will be drawn at random. Um, and I feel like that if that happens, there's going to be a lot of criticism of the, of the commission language that put this together and that voters passed. Yeah. That, you know, to go through all this process... Um, and all these open meetings to have a map drawn uh, at random, I think there's going to be a lot of questions about whether that works. Now, it may not even may not come to that. They, they could, they, there is certainly a very good chance. And I think the commissioners want to pass a proposal on their own um, without going into these uh, more complicated uh, mechanisms. But that's really the thing to watch. In general, the versions of the maps that are out there are not that different. There are some notable differences. I think you know this isn't in your region, but for Congress in Southwest Michigan, there are some major differences in how Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids are handled. Mm-hmm. It will have significant partisan implications and implications for incumbents. Um, definitely in uh, the Metro Detroit area, major implications for what happens with uh, the incumbents there like Brenda Lawrence, Debbie Dingle, Haley Stevens, Andy Levin. Um, you know, that we're losing, you know, Michigan's losing a congressional district. That's right. It's sort of like a game of musical chairs. At least one member is going to probably be in, in a rough position as far as trying to win again. And it could be more than one member because, you know, one of the smart things the, the uh, commission proposal that was passed in 2018 did was it said no more taking incumbency into account. Um, you know, for many years, uh, a lot of the decisions that were made as far as mapping was done was to either benefit or damage incumbents. And now that's not a factor. 
Um, so, you know, a lot of incumbents are going to be facing, you know, looking at uh, moving potentially to put themselves in a more politically advantageous spot to run. Um, or maybe they decide that they're out. There's just no way they can, there's no seat for them to yeah. win. Yeah. Um, so, and then that's to say nothing of the court battles over these maps yes. that I think are right. inevitable, right? Yes. I mean, the moment these things pass, it's going to be a matter of, you know, hours before people start suing. You know, based on the maps that are out there right now, I think we can expect to see a major Voting Rights Act lawsuit mm-hmm. brought. Um, you know, that could be done by uh, civil rights organizations. There's a tremendous amount of concern that these maps are going to diminish uh, the number of black elected officials representing uh, the state of Michigan and their, and the communities within the state of Michigan. Um, you know, that is what a lot of this recent lawsuit was about, was what the commission's attorneys were telling them about yes. Voting Rights Act. Right now, we have more than 10 uh, majority minority districts across the Michigan Senate, Michigan House, and U.S. House in Michigan, where um, uh, Black residents make up more than 50% of the district. And I don't remember the exact number, but the maps that are out there right now take it almost to zero, maybe one. I mean, it's it's really a dramatic change where you know the black voting age population drops down to like 40 percent or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and where parts of Detroit, which, of course, is heavily, heavily black, is cut up and drawn into white suburban areas where it is possible we don't know what's going to happen, but it is a possible scenario where these maps could produce a situation where most of Detroit is represented by white suburbanites, which I would sort of view as a uh, somewhat apocalyptic, disastrous scenario. So if in you know the day after the November 2022 elections, there's almost no black elected officials in Michigan, it will be, I think... I don't know many people who would say that the commission was anything other than a fiasco, right. that going to the system was a fiasco. Now, that may not happen. It may not happen, but it could. Well, I mean, there's an interesting um, argument so, going on there that hasn't gotten a lot of exposition, and it may in the lawsuits, which is that if you look nationally at uh, districts, both in state legislatures and in Congress, that are represented by non-white uh, members, uh, the average the average district is forty percent non-white, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of people who say that's a way to actually expand the opportunity to elect non-white representatives. You can draw a lot more districts that have forty percent or more African American, for instance, uh, residents. But then, of course, there are a lot of African Americans who say. That's that's too chancy, right? Uh, yes. You're much more certain, obviously, if you're over 50% than if you are at 40. And it will be very interesting if that suit gets filed to see the examples that people draw on to try to make uh, to try to make their arguments. One of them, I think, will be Dearborn, for instance, where we just saw the first Arab American and first Muslim mayor elected in November. That's a community that is, well, about 40 percent 
Arab American. So uh, I, it's it's a fascinating, I think, yes. discussion and, and argument. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this really great conversation with Zach Gorchow about what happened in Lansing in 2021. We're going to talk a little more about the state legislature and the governor, about COVID relief, about all of this money that we are getting from the federal government, how it should be spent, what it's doing right now. Some of it is just kind of sitting there in Lansing. We'll also get to your phone calls and social media comments. Mark in West Bloomfield, Anthony in Southwest Detroit, Dennis in Dearborn, Tim in Detroit. We will hear from you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are continuing our series of shows here at the end of the year, taking a, ba- a look back at the year 2021. We have done that with the year in law, the year in COVID, and today we're taking a look at the year in Michigan politics, all the things that have happened in Lansing in 2021. Uh, our guest is Zach Gorchow. He's publisher and executive editor of Gongwer News Service in Lansing, uh, the news source that uh, probably covers Lansing the most closely here in our state. Uh, we want to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number. As always, on the phones, you can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work into the conversation. Let's start today with Mark in West Bloomfield. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Stephen. Thanks sure. for having me on the show. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, my concern uh, is uh, very pressing, and that is that um, it appears that uh, the Michigan legislature is complicit, um, in my opinion, with the incident that happened in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. And this is my this is my reasoning that last April 30th in Lansing, uh, there was a rally um, that uh, uh, was put on by Michigan militia members and, you know, various Michigan uh, anti-government paramilitary groups. And uh, at that rally. They were brandishing their, you know, uh, AR-15s and, and similar weapons. Um, there were also some swastikas that were seen at the rally. There was also some individual who had a brunette doll hanging by a noose, mm-hmm. um, you know, which was uh, uh, ostensibly Governor Whitmer in, in effigy. And so these guys came into the Michigan State Capitol building with their AR-15s during a legislative session, uh, you know, intimidating and, and, and terrorizing, um, you know, uh, legislators who were trying to do their job. And uh, it, it brings to mind there, there's specifically one black female uh, legislator 
who felt so unsafe that she brought her own, uh, you know, three sure. or four uh, uh, men, you know, with their with their own um, legally carried weapons, you know, because she was feeling unsafe. Yeah. So when I complained to my Michigan state representative, uh, Ryan Berman, uh, and I, I spoke with his aide and I said, tell, uh, tell Ryan Berman that he should draft some legislation to make it illegal to carry uh, firearms into the Michigan state Capitol building. So Rep Berman's aide told me that uh, he said, Rep Berman is perfectly fine with that because those guys are simply exercising their second amendment rights. Mm. So that's yeah. pretty, that's, that's pretty crazy. But even, even of, of more concern than that is the fact that after that rally, which was really, uh, you know, a, a, a terrorizing incident, um, Mike Shirky had a private meeting yes. with, um, you know, uh, some of these paramilitary groups. And there was no press there. There were no minutes or right. no notes or anything. So, Mark, and, I, I, I don't want to I don't want to cut you off, but but I, I, I remember all of these events. And I think lots of our listeners do as well. It was it was a pretty big deal when when this stuff happened. And, and the reason I wanted to include you in the conversation here is I think it's a, an interesting way to start the discussion here about the legislature, about the governor, about the relationship between uh, those two parts of our state government and and how broken, I suppose, uh, that that relationship is. So Zach Gorchow uh, marks walk down recent memory lane in Lansing. I think it does set the stage for a discussion about some of the some of the deep problems we have not just in terms of partisanship which you know is always part of of politics and and government but a, a fundamental cleave i think that exists in Lansing and and to to the same extent in Washington uh, between one side uh, and the other so so catch us up on where we are now with uh, with that dispute and how it's affecting these these policy debates we're having about, for instance, COVID restrictions or how to spend the federal money that's coming for COVID relief and, and all of the things that the legislature and the governor have to sort through. Well, I mean, I, th I think it's just now finally starting to uh, warm up a little bit in terms of the functional relationship between the governor and Senate Majority Leader Shirky. Um, you know, we saw with this economic development, you know, major economic development incentive package that was passed almost with lightning speed, you know, $1 billion incentive program with a tremendous amount of flexibility given to the Whitmer administration and how to uh, disperse that. Um, you know, that happened very quickly. And, uh, you know, on balance, that's not the kind of policy, you know, Mike Shirky would generally support. In fact, at the beginning of the year, when the governor was calling for stronger economic development tools, he was pretty chilly to that idea. And, you know, for much of the beginning of this year, the relationship between Governor Whitmer and Senator Shirky was as toxic as ever, especially with the kinds of things that were coming from Senator Shirky, sort of the infamous caught on video where he talked about uh, wanting to, to fist fight the governor on Capitol lawn. 
I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to go totally down the rabbit hole with this, <laughs> but there was a lot of really wild stuff that yes. was coming out of the Shirky, uh, you know, out of Shirky on this. Um, but, you know, the governor, you know, looking, I think, you know, this year, really from, you know, mid-January on, I think decided, you know, once vaccines were available, she decided it was time to no longer be the you know, COVID restrictions, COVID orders governor. Um, you know, she still has the power through the Department of Health and Human Services, which mm-hmm. you know, the director, she appoints um, to issue new orders, but has, you know, there are essentially almost no orders in effect now. Um, and, uh, you know, there's pretty much total freedom of movement. Uh, and the only place where masks are, are required is in healthcare settings. Um, and so with the governor now having rescinded all of those rules, uh, you know, the Republican legislature, which of course loathed those rules, fought them tooth and nail, um, it has been more willing to work with her on, on some things like the budget, like moving you know, the billions in federal aid out the door, which is clearly a huge priority of the governor's. And then when, when Ford Motor Company decided to put these um, battery plants, electric vehicle plants in Kentucky and Tennessee, that seemed to finally be the thing that would pierce the usual, you know, everyone go to their partisan corners. Mm-hmm. Um, the Republican legislature, uh, you know, basically it was almost, it was very, in some ways, old school where the governor said, we got to have this, I got to have this economic development plan, what do you need? And, you know, look, no one's publicly come out and said there was horse trading done, but you can look and see at what passed and what happened all at the same time and draw, I I think it's pretty easy to make some inferences that, you know, other tax breaks that Republicans have been prioritizing for business were quickly passed and sent to the governor's desk. Republicans in the House, where they have a number of vacancies right now, have been clamoring for the governor to schedule special elections sooner than later. She did that, I think, uh, you know, roughly within 24 to 48 hours after the economic incentive package passed. So long answer to the question, there's definitely been uh, some warming of this Cold War that's been going on for two years. Um, that being said, you know, Politics being politics and the personalities being what they are. I don't think anybody thinks that, uh, you know, everyone's singing Kumbaya um, (laughs) and it's going to suddenly, you know, all of a sudden all these, you know, there's going to be a tremendous amount of collaboration, but the stars uh, did align here. Uh, And so, you know, there was, there was, you know, people around Lansing have sort of marveled at, wow, you know, they really found a way to get something very significant done. Um, despite all the problems. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that I think looms large in the background at this point is the fact that 2022 is an election year. Governor Whitmer will have to stand for re-election. The state House and Senate will have to stand for re-election. And Mm -hmm. that, that of course, makes everything feel more urgent, I think, to the people who are involved, but but it also makes it more difficult, I think, to to really get things done. And you would think, I suppose, that uh, everybody would have been focused at the end of this year on trying to get some of the, 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 the no-brainer stuff uh, through so that it doesn't get caught into that election cycle. But but we still have this this argument going over argument going on over a significant amount of money that is still unspent. Uh, the governor wants to spend it one way. 
the legislature says, hey, you got to include us more in in those priorities. Uh, I, I I worry that you know, come January third, it's going to be almost impossible to have that conversation without elections kind of influencing them, and that'll make it that'll make it a little more difficult and certainly more gamey. Yeah, I think, you know, there's inevitably going to be on the Republican side a little bit of reticence about letting the governor, you know, how many wins do we let the governor have Mm -hmm. um, before it becomes, you know, we're sort of developing her reelection message for her, Um, you know, with the, you know, economic development incentive, it appeared that everyone was like, forget that this is too important. We can't let you know, GM or, you know, another major project uh, just completely slip away. Again, this is existential, uh, but not every issue is existential. Um, You know, that being said, you know, we finally have seen um, the legislature has put forward some significant proposals on how to spend the federal money. Um, So, you know, the question will be, when does that happen? You know, I the longer they wait, the harder it will be for the governor to really take the benefit of it. Let, let's just say, for example, uh, that uh, by May, uh, the legislature and governor have agreed on um, a major package. You know, I think the Senate has proposed uh, you know, close to, you know, in the many hundreds of millions for water infrastructure, mm-hmm. maybe be in, in the billion range. Um, and the governor, and there's 10 billion coming in for infrastructure. Let's say most of that gets pushed out the door by May. The reality is those projects are really not going to happen before the election. And, uh, you know, it's going to be hard for the governor to really get the benefit of it because the public, I don't think, is going to see that work happening. They're not going to feel it. They'll, they'll, they'll certainly be able to see the headlines. Mm-hmm. The governor will be able to talk about it, put it in ads, but it's one thing to see, you know, the headlines of the you know, passage and another thing to see all the orange barrels or to get news um, from, you know, your local water authority. Hey, guess what? We're digging up. We're going to replace all the lead lines. Um, that could be still a long, you know, quite a ways away uh, yeah. after passage. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll include you in the conversation. Let's go next to Anthony in Southwest Detroit. Anthony, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Stephen. And I'm uh, looking at, you know, something interesting, just the way Michigan has been getting into it with Canada this year. And, you know, the governor wants to shut down Line 5, but Canada's mm-hmm. not having it. And obviously all our um, uh, congressmen and stuff are really pushing the EV tax credits in the Congress, and Canada's not really having that either with the USMCA. Mm. So I'm looking into that. And also, I want to say, if you want to see bipartisanship, you need only look to Mackinac Island. You know what goes on up there every year. <laughs> Anthony, appreciate the call and the observations, especially about uh, especially about Mackinac, which we saw a return of the Mackinac Policy Conference this fall after uh, after the COVID inter- interruption. But but I want to go back to your point about Line 5 in particular and the kind of interesting os- observation about uh, American politicians and, and Canadian politicians really disagreeing about that. Um, and, and as you point out about some other things, Zach Gorchow, what do you make of the governor's desire to shut that down and the fact that it's not 
just uh, oil companies or gas companies who are against it. It's the Canadian government as well. Well, yes, and you know the caller's point is very interesting. You know, Michigan and Canada historically have have had a pretty close relationship. Um, I mean, you know, Canada is basically, you know, not basically they are paying for the cost of the new bridge connecting Detroit and Windsor, and you know, Michigan's not paying uh, a dime for it. So it's, um, you know, it's always been a very you know close relationship, but there are. Um, you know, some real, real tensions uh, over Line 5 because it transports, it, first of all, Enbridge is a Canadian company, uh, and uh, the pipeline transports so, uh, so much fuel and oil and gas uh, into Ontario. Um, you know, the governor is trying to fill a campaign promise. Um, it's somewhat awkward because on the one hand, you have this fight over line five, which is the pipeline at the bottom of the Straits of Mackinac. Uh, it's exposed, it sits on the floor. It's been there since the fifties, I think. Um, and there've been a number, you know, there've been some anchor strikes and some scares about uh, the condition of the line, albeit no, you know, no you know, leaks of oil or fuel into the, into the lakes. Um, but uh, regardless of what happens you know, in terms of shutting the line down, it's a matter of time until it is replaced and put into a tunnel underneath the Straits of Mackinac. That is going to happen. That is that is regardless been decided. Of this. Yeah. Right. That's been decided. That's going to happen. There will still be a flow of oil and gas, um, you know, between the upper and lower peninsula. It just will eventually be underneath the lake bed. Um, so this is sort of a fight over what happens the next. Uh, four to five years, six years, uh, and whether that that line on the bottom of the lake bed will continue to operate. Um, this has been a real, I think, a big political problem for for the governor uh, because she's got the environmental wing of her party is very, very committed to wanting this shut down. Um, but organized labor does not want it shut down. And there's been a lot of division um, among Democrats in Lansing about what to do. And about you know major democratic interest groups, you've got organized labor on one side, the environmental organizations on the other, uh, and it's it's been a very difficult one for the governor to navigate. Uh, you know, my goodness, at the you know biennial Michigan Republican Party meeting on Mackinac Island, they had a couple of major union officials mm -hmm. there. Uh, you know, th this was I, I mean that was shocking to me. Uh, you know, this would be like. Uh, you know, a major, you know, Republican constituency uh, showing up at the Democratic convention, you know, someone from the Michigan Chamber of Commerce or something like that. Um, this, this was, you know, really, you know, a sign of, you know, how difficult an issue this has been for uh, the governor and Michigan Democrats. And uh, right now, I think it's safe to say that the governor is losing both the legal and uh, you know, legal battle on this. I think Mm -hmm. The anti-Line 5 people are, are losing the battle on this as well, because, again, the tunnel is coming. They, they can't stop that from happening. Um, you know, before the tunnel proposal was passed at the end of 2018, I think the environmental lobby had the upper hand here because it was about this old pipeline sitting exposed on the bottom of the lake bed. And they could make the argument about safety for the Great Lakes. Um, but... Once the tunnel comes into being, it's no longer about the safety of the Great Lakes. It's about you know climate change and you know, you know flow of oil and gas. You know, should we be using oil? 
that's a totally different issue to be arguing than safety of the Great Lakes, which there's probably about you know unanimous 100% support for. So um, it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we need to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue talking about the year in Michigan politics with Zach Gorchow of Gong War News Service. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. Jake in Southwest Detroit, Dennis in Dearborn, you're up next. You want to join them? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about the year in Michigan politics, the year 2021, looking forward to 2022, which will be an election year here in our state. Uh, our guest this hour is Zach Gorchow. He is publisher and executive editor of Gongwer News Service, which covers the business of state government very closely. Uh, we want to hear from you as well, what you think some of the big issues and stories were uh, from 2021 uh, in Lansing. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, put comments there. And uh, we will we will work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, welcome to the show. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm going to footnote Mark's comments, uh, so I'll add add there. Um, competency and respect for uh, uh, knowledge and history. I I believe that I come from the. I'm a retired nursing home administrator, and I come from the medical and one of the things that we're worried about is that the cut and paste of history or history and physicals that it's been a downgrade to medical thing it's a cut and paste cut and paste you know rather than rethink it rewrite it hmm. and i think our government is kind of doing the same thing you know we're getting oh what's what what's a good idea not not what are the people saying and what are we getting into their lives and bringing that to the legislature but uh what uh what are the ideas out there that we want for our power structure and our power system and to go with that? Yeah. So I'm disappointed in the legislative process. Uh, my dad said when I was a kid, he said, watch out, uh, watch out for the Democrats. All they do is talk and watch out for the Republicans because all they do is legislate. So here we are. <laughs> uh, Dennis, that's a, that's a really great perspective. I love that, that uh, bit of advice from your dad uh, as well. Thanks so much for the call. And the comments. Let's go to Jake in Southwest Detroit. Jake, what's on your mind? Uh, hey, thanks for taking my call, guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, more of a comment. Uh, the line five issue. One thing that I found interesting through this whole fight, and even going back to the replacement of line six B, Enbridge's other pipeline, is that conservatives have been kind of quiet about 
uh, property rights when it can, comes to Enbridge using eminent domain uh, to take take Michigan's uh, Michigan residents' land from them to put their pipeline through the ground, and uh, especially being a you know a Canadian company and uh, you know uh, seizing seizing people's property and mm. that being such a fundamental issue for conservatives, but <laughs> hasn't really been covered by the media and. Uh, I think they've gotten a pass on it, and uh, yeah, mm. just find it interesting that they just let Embridge get away with that, yeah, kind of quietly. Jake, that's an interesting observation. It's not something I have uh, necessarily thought of. Zach, the, the, uh, what does the property rights issue, or guess, how does that intersect with with Enbridge? I guess I don't know. Well, <laughs> um, you know, I might have to take a pass on this one. It's not something I am really up on. Maybe yeah. I, it sounds like something I should be up on, um, yeah. but I don't. You know, I don't like to speculate on things I haven't studied. Yeah, on. I got to say, I haven't. Uh, I haven't seen a lot about that. Uh, about that either. Uh, before we break uh, or have to end the show, I, I do want to talk just a little about twenty twenty two, and in particular the governor's race, which is going to heat up pretty quickly, I think. Uh, but also the legislative races, which will be very interesting because there's new maps and lots of people have to run either in different places than they are used to running or uh, decide whether they want to want to run at all. What should our eyes be on in January uh, when all of this gets started? Well, the governor's race is, is the key. That's what really sets the table um, for the entire ticket, you know, it's, you know, it would be, for example, let's, I, you know, I'm not predicting this will happen by any stretch, but if, you know, Governor Whitmer were to say win by a large percentage, um, you know, it's not like suddenly the rest of the Republican ticket is going to dominate. Uh, that, you know, that just generally doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the top of the ticket sets the tone and uh, the national political climate, more to the point, sets the tone. And right now, um, I don't think there's any question if the election were held today, Republicans would do would do quite well. Of course, the election is not held today, and we don't even know who the Republican candidate for governor is going to be. Um, so before you, know, you delve into what's going to happen to the legislature, the question really is, how does Governor Whitmer do? And do the Republicans, are the Republicans able to nominate a strong candidate against her? You know, right now they have a a cast of uh, really unproven unknowns uh, in many ways. You know, James Craig does have some some good name recognition with Republican voters from his many, many, many appearances on Fox News Channel, as well as his name recognition in the Metro Detroit area from being the former police chief. But he's, this is a whole new stage uh, for him. And, I, you know, it's been a bit of a bumpy start, I think, hmm. um, as far as him, you know, beginning as a statewide candidate. But, you know, no one's really paying attention. I know what I mean, voters at large, uh, you know, to what's been happening so far. You know, who really captures the imagination of Republican voters and is able to uh, win the primary? I really have no idea how that's going to turn out. I think right now Craig would have a nominal edge just because none of you know, no one really knows who the other Republican candidates are at this point. Um, there is you know, Kevin Rinke, the former uh, auto dealer executive, is you know, apparently going to spend somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 million and, and probably will be well-known by the time of the August primary, but does he, you know, 
Is he like Rick Snyder, where he sort of runs sort of a center-right message, watches the other conservatives split up the vote, and uses his own resources to win? Or does he end up uh, like other candidates uh, who sometimes pour millions of money in, you know, into a race, and it doesn't matter because voters just decide, eh, not really taken, you know, not really interested. Right. Hard to say. Um, you know, you've got Tudor Dixon and um, Garrett Soldano who are appealing, I think, to the activist wings of the Republican Party, but are going to have to demonstrate they can raise a lot more money than they have uh, and broaden their appeal beyond uh, 10% of the vote in the Republican primary to win. And, and then once we get to the general election, look, uh, no Democratic governor has stood for re-election with a Democrat in the White House since 1962 in Michigan. Uh, it's going to be a much more challenging environment for Governor Whitmer mm. with Joe Biden in the White House than it was in 2018 with Donald Trump. She had an ideal political environment, um, especially with a Republican exiting the governorship in 2018. Uh, this time she's going to have a very, very difficult political environment. I think that's why we're seeing her tack back toward the center um, and emphasizing uh, you know, issues that can appeal to independents like uh, you know, the auto insurance mm -hmm, mm -hmm. legislation, which, you know, is very controversial um, among a number of people in the Democratic Party and also uh, with you know, accident victims who have seen their care uh, put into major doubt as a result. But the governor is going to be talking about $400 per vehicle refund. Um, you know, probably every day between now and November, you know, the November 2022 election, that's going to be an issue. She campaigns on heavily. The Democratic Governors Association is already paying for television advertising to run during the college bowl games, <laughs> talking that up. Yeah. So she's got her work cut out for her. But right now, you'd have to say the governor is still a, you know, a favorite to win. You know, since Michigan went to the four year term for governor with the 1966 elections, uh, you know, Michigan governors are undefeated running yeah. for a second term. Mm -hmm. The only defeat for re-election was Jim Blanchard in 1990 when he was seeking a third term. So um, she's got a lot of advantages, but a, a, a difficult environment she's facing for sure. Yeah. Okay, Zach Gorchow, it is always great to have your brain engaged in these kinds of conversations here on Detroit Today, but especially today. It was great to have you here for this uh, look back at 2021. Hope you have a great holiday season and thanks so much for joining us. Well, it was great to be with you, Stephen. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk about the year in environmental news from flooding here in Southeast Michigan, the global efforts to limit the worst effects of climate change. I'm going to talk with University of Detroit Mercy environmental law professor, Nick Schreck. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.